This is no joke to God. You either have a teachable spirit or you don't. And when you don't, you go sideways very quickly anytime anything pushes your buttons. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today are my friends and yours, Eric. Hey there. And Karen. Good morning. And Tracy. Good morning. Morning, everybody. Well, I guess Karen has some good news, or at least some progress, uh, on her medical situation that we've been praying about. And uh, Karen, would you mind giving us a little update here on that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I had one had one surgery on my right ear last Monday, and I have another one coming up this Monday. So the one last Monday was kind of a oh, exploratory, physically remove all signs of infection, um, get the lay of the land. My poor, stupid ear has been so infected they couldn't even do a proper exam. So they basically put me under general anesthesia and just dove into it. It was really awful. I'm glad I slept through it because I was really sore afterwards. Mm. Um, so the good news was... The good news was no sign of cancer. That was a, a thing that they had mentioned, like you've got something growing in there that shouldn't be there and we don't know what it is. So they biopsied it, got the biopsy results back before the surgery, not cancer. We're good to go. That's good. Um, don't know if they'll need to cut it out. It is it is not natural tissue, but it but it is not dangerous tissue. So the, this, this coming Monday, they actually start the reconstruction process. They'll have to rebuild the actual ear structure and then rebuild the, the ear hearing mechanism. So, um, and, and we'll see, we don't actually know if all that's going to get done in one surgery or if it's going to, if I'll have to go back in a few months to get part of the reconstruction done. It will depend how it goes when he gets in there. So we'll all wake up from surgery and be surprised. It'll mm. be like Christmas. Maybe I'll have to go back for more or maybe it will be, this is tremendously expensive. So I hope I don't have to go back for a third one. Um, in other news, I tested negative two weeks in a row for COVID, even though they took a drill bit and I swear tried to get to the back of my brain to look for some. There still wasn't <laughs> any second week in a row. <laughs> and then they were like, yeah, sorry, we're out of our normal, our normal swab. So we're going to use this electric drill or something like that. I'm pretty sure that's what they said. Oh, oh. And it was terrible. Like it actually made me cry. And I don't mean my eyes water. I mean, it actually made me cry. Like he had to wait for me to stop sobbing before he did the other, the other nostril. It was terrible. Oh man. Um, and then in other news, I was reading my MRI report, and I apparently tested negative for something called brainstem, which like I really you don't have one. I please clarify. I thought I needed one, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I that's weird. Maybe I can get handicapped parking for the rest of my life. I don't know. I just there you go. That was so funny to me. And I know that I know that what they meant to say was they scanned my brain stem for signs of infection, but that's not how they wrote it. They put that they scanned that I came up negative for brain stem. And I was like, okay, that's that's good stuff. So, so the rest of us you didn't get the caveat at the end that dragon was used and words may be omitted and don't worry about that. <laughs> what did you say, Eric? <laughs> so um, I call that I'm the lion. <laughs> Man, 
<laughs> well, so if you've, if you've ever wondered why I say something or I do something, we may have just like a universal explanation now. I don't know. <laughs> Karen doesn't have brainstem. <laughs> yeah. That was just a Wizard of Oz reference there. But for those of you who are wondering, what in the world? And Karen and I are friends, and I care very much about Karen. If I only had a brain. No, I think I have a brain. I think it's just the stem I'm missing. Oh, I only had the whole brain, not just part because of it. Because it said <laughs> that my brain tissue was normal, which is insulting. I've always thought I was far superior, but okay, fine. They said normal. <laughs> it was only the brain stem that came up negative. So I don't really, I'm working on this. And I'm, and I'm, Maybe it's a superpower. Maybe I'm starting late and this is like a, a thing. I don't know. It's never too oh. late. <laughs> well, at least, uh, <laughs> folks. Yeah. At least we have some, some good news in a yes. time when things are bonkers. Stupid. stupid. Yes. Well, and the sad thing is, is that this will come out in two weeks and mm -hmm. that will be referring to an entirely different thing that we're not aware of yet. <laughs> un un undoubtedly, and I bet it still applies. Yes. <laughs> but hey, on the upside, Karen, have you asked the doctor if they can give you super hearing? Um, um, at this point, I would just be happy with hearing, so I'm trying not to be mm. demanding. Okay. Right. Well, we'll keep you in prayer. I would totally be like, give me superpowers. But, yes. you know, some well, of us are more humble than others. For others listening, we grew up in the era of Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic well, Woman. And just so, yeah. say... Jamie through walls. <laughs> That's just part of our our expectations in life. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> yeah, I, always, I see the movies and stuff where somebody wakes up and they've got all these robotic parts in them and they get all upset about it. I'm going, what's your problem, man? That would be awesome. <laughs> that will never fail. Well, th and that's not true either, because I have already had this ear reconstructed and it failed. So here we are yeah. again. So maybe yeah. maybe our uh, maybe our assumptions of of it's an upgrade. An upgrade. Being great is. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully, this one sticks. Yes. No. All righty. Well, let's get into this discussion. I think this is going to be a doozy, you guys, because I mean we're we're in a situation where we just had some real ugly stuff going on at the Capitol. We're finishing up a, you know, four years of a of a presidential term that not everyone has agreed with. Um, I think probably even among the four of us, there are way going to be, you know, differing opinion, uh, opinions on that front. Um, not that we're going to argue about any of that here. But um, to be we fair, get... I've never experienced a presidential term that everyone agreed with in my social circle, though. So well, you know, let's yeah, just throw that in there. That's true. That is true. But so as we get into First Samuel chapter eleven. Uh, I want to just recap, rem remind everybody that we, uh, last week, last episode, we were talking about Saul, who was made king uh, through, uh, by God, but through uh, the prophet Samuel. And it was a situation where everybody said, oh, hey, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God had for generations been saying, I am your king. But the people said, nope, we want we want it. We want a dude. So God said, OK, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you what you asked for. And he gives them a guy and they'll go, oh, yeah, he looks exactly like what we want. And um, 
most of the people are happy. Not everybody. Uh, I think that's the kicker too. Where we need to start is that he gave them what they wanted. Yeah, what they and what they visually and aesthetically wanted is what he gave them. Yeah, because that's what they wanted. They said yep. we want we want to be like other people. We want to look like other people. So and, he, you know, he went with the the biggest in stature, the good looking, the from a great family. Now the tribe is questionable at this point, but that's what that's what they got. Mm-hmm. They got it. They got exactly what they wanted, and and so Saul was made king. Um, even somewhat to his reluctance, but uh, nevertheless, he was made king. And things start to come to a head for his term as king here in chapter 11. We get Nahash the Ammonite, who comes up against the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And he's going to attack them. And Jabesh-Gilead says, well, hey, how about uh, you just, you know, we make a treaty or you make a covenant with us is the way it's said, I I think. And this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's kind of north in the in the Israel land, I guess you'd call it, uh, not too far away from the Sea of Galilee. So just to give a little geographical location, not terribly important there. But uh, Nahash is like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll make a treaty with you guys. Um, let me put out your right eyes, all of you. Just line up, and we're just going to poke your eyes out. <laughs> Sounds like a, I don't know, cartoon. Yeah, I don't know. So that's crazy. But yeah, I'll make a treaty with you. I'll either kill all of you, or if you let me, I'll just put your eyes out instead. Well, Ugh. thanks, thank, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, the the Jabesh Gileadites they say, uh, how about you give us seven days to think about this? Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, Nahash agrees to this. He's like, yeah, okay, I, I will be benevolent, and I will give you your seven days. And uh, they send messengers out and to get uh, word to now their king king saul and um he catches word of it and it says the spirit of god came upon saul so this is interesting here you know we've alluded many times here and if people aren't familiar with the story i mean the the spoiler alert as eric would say is that uh saul ends up not being great as a king and um but he is the guy that god chose for the israelites and he starts out actually, you know, not so bad. And the spirit came upon Saul and he sends his own message throughout Israel. And how they did all this in seven days, I don't know. But uh, he gets this message out by by chopping up some oxen and sending them out and says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to do this to your oxen. You know, looking at that and to kind of what we were talking about and I, we had text back and forth and we had said, hey, do some supplemental reading and that kind of thing. But I think this is where we start to see the pendulum go back and forth and that free will, free choice, able to choose, you know, and make the decision is that we see the pendulum swing where Saul is at first reluctant to take be the king. Then he's neutral about being the king, but still submissive to God, where the spirit of God came upon him to 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 do this and to get into into this this battle. And God is working through him where, like you'd say, or Eric would say, spoiler alert, he didn't always make the right choices. Mm-hmm. And his character at this point is is with God. But I think as we continue to move on, we see a shift where self starts to jump in there. 
you know, and I think we see a little bit right at the beginning because nowhere in here does it say that he requested anybody to join him in this battle. It's like he threatened everybody first. You're going to come and fight with me or there's going to be consequences. Did you catch did you guys yep. catch that? And yep. I think yep. that might have been because of in the end of chapter 10 when you had uh, a good portion of Israel that did not really care for the idea of him as king. Because if you remember, they said, how can this man save us? You know, or maybe that was how can this man save us? I don't know. But um, it would seem that there was a pretty good, uh, pretty good percentage of, of the Israelites who were not ke- real keen on him being their leader. Sounds sort of familiar. But he makes he makes threats to them instead of uh, just sending a request saying, hey, come join me. We have you know a city in trouble. But through his threats. 300,000 men from Israel. Actually, I guess it's 330,000 men if I read this right. Yeah. Which it's it said 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. And I was wondering I was curious about why why that stipulation there, why that separation some from okay. Israel but some from Judah. Are we seeing is this like the beginnings of the separation of the of the kingdom or or is it just you know, specifically, these guys came from Judah. I don't know what that is, but it's it's worth noting because it's a thing that happens in the future. Yeah, uh, but haven't we, haven't we seen this before? When when they're saying, you know, everybody came out, but only so many people came out from your tribe. Yeah, they're always keeping track of that. You've mentioned that before in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so they're keeping track of that. One thing to note here, and it shows up again later is that when Saul calls the people out on his, hey, everybody show up, he says, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel. Mm-hmm. But Saul's not calling this in his own name exclusively. He's he's leaning on Samuel for legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Right. So just, just stick that in the back of your mind here. It shows up again later. Um, yeah. So uh, I thought, and maybe I totally misunderstood this, but when it said Israel and Judah, I thought it was talking about the two different physical locations of the tribes. Like most of them were on this side of the river and a few of them were on that side of the river. That's what I thought it meant. Which could make sense, kind of giving you a lot in you. Okay, so they all had to come together to to form an army. Yeah. Mm. Uh, could anyway, be. It, does, it doesn't matter. That's just, just yeah. for perspective's sake. That's but what then that's I think yeah, that we, when we look at this, we kind of see that Saul wasn't, there wasn't like a capital set up. He wasn't so much that king anymore. He went back to his hometown. He yeah. was just a husband. He left everything to Saul. He hadn't even put together, let's just call it a cabinet. He hadn't even done that because this was totally brand new to them. He went back home, and, and Samuel still had the reins as it being a theocracy for Israel. He was mm-hmm. he was king by name alone. Yeah. This is kind of forged his his um, kingdom at this point. Yeah. So to have the battle, Israelites show up just in the nick of time and just start to wipe out the Ammonites here. They do a mostly thorough job, but not a completely thorough job. They, uh, Israel wins, and at the end, then comes up this idea of revenge in 11-12. Uh, the people said, hey, so who are these people who said Saul shall Saul reign over us? Bring him here, and we'll put him to death. And Saul says, no, that's not going to happen today. 
for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Interesting, he gives credit to God here, just straight up. And he says, no, we're going we're gonna to have mercy, we're going to have grace. We're not going to be doing now. Again, this is some foreshadowing, and we contrast this to what's going to happen later, given an almost identical situation uh, in a battle later. We'll see what, how Saul's character changes and what happens as a result. Yeah, so Saul does have this uh, moment of he shows some wisdom and benevolence there. And he is, this is kind of where he is officially made king. He had been, he had been anointed as king. He had been declared as king. But it was like now, at the end of chapter 11, they finally actually go through like a ceremony and, you know, they make it, they make it official sacrifices, peace offerings and everything. And, and everybody's happy about it. Or I suppose not everybody, but, you know, everybody there, everybody at his inauguration is happy about it. Now, as you know, we could call this his coronation, I guess. And Samuel is there and he's, how did, was it Samuel that says this? Yeah. And he says, okay, I've given you a king like you asked. But then he turns right around and he says, basically, this is Samuel. Have I ever wronged any of you? You know, have I ever taken any of your stuff? Have I ever hurt any of you? Have I ever in any way wronged any of you. And the people acknowledge no. And he starts going through the story of uh, of the nation of Israel from starting from Moses and reminding them that uh, you've been brought out of Egypt. He's done this before, too. It wasn't it a few um, a few chapters back. He takes us through the same thing. Remember where you came from. Yes. This is mm-hmm. not where we want to go, but this is where you're you're leading us at this point. Now, Matt, you mentioned something. You said, okay. well, here comes Samuel saying, behold, you know, look, you know, what have I done to you and all this? It would seem odd that he would begin his address in chapter 12 with something like that. But here's where I'm going to propose why that happens is because he is trying to establish a true north here. Because once lies start flying around, there's there, that, and that's the thing. I've had this discussion with Jellery a lot this week. Is that when you're dealing with somebody or some group or some, who is lying, it doesn't matter because you can switch the lie. You know, if if I get caught driving away in in uh, in Karen's car and the police pull me over and they say, "Did you steal this car?" I said, "No, I didn't steal the car." Well, what did you do? I borrowed it. Well, they say it was stolen. Well, actually, um, I'm not Eric. Well, what do you mean? It's like, you're not a police officer. What? Like, you're not even here. What? And it's like, um, no, this car, I work for a mechanic. Basically, I can just keep lying and lying and lying and lying. And they're like, her dad gave me the keys. And no, I mean, I found it on the side of the road. Because it doesn't, because once, once you're lying, you can say anything you want to. And once credibility is gone, it's like, yeah, whatever you say, I can't believe it. Because Samuel is about to tell them something really, really important and sobering. And he has to, he has to say, now look here, can you trust me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the way I read it too. If he doesn't get that established, then everything he says after that is like, oh yeah, sure, whatever Samuel says, because you can't trust that guy. He's establishing, look, for my whole life, have you been able to listen to what I say? Have what I said, because we ran into this earlier, too, is it even uh, everybody acknowledges like, oh, yeah, that's Samuel. Boy, everything he says comes true. And then Samuel's like, don't get a king because here's what's going to happen. And they're like, Oop. 
sure, okay, whatever. So um, <clears throat> I worked in the legal field for a long time, and I've, I've run a bunch of uh, jury trials. And it's, it's a really similar process. The, each, each side takes their turn, and the first thing they do is establish good intention and credibility. That's like, that's the thing. And because, because the, the, the threshold for guilt or innocence in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so we have to define each thing as it goes along. What does doubt mean? What does reasonable mean? What do we know that are facts, both prosecution and defense? What do we know that is circumstantial evidence? What can we infer? What can we reasonably infer from that, right? But the, but the baseline where everything starts is, is good intention and credibility. And I, so when I, when I read chapter 12 and I read, um, and I must have gotten off a chapter because I really thought that we started in 12 this week, but anyway, whatever. Um, I, my first thought was, oh yeah, he's establishing credibility. He's getting everybody in the room to agree who he is, that his intentions are good, that his credibility is solid. He doesn't have a history of truth violation or taking advantage. And then from here, they'll listen to him. And he goes into their history because that's stuff that even if they were maybe to be like, yeah, well, I don't know, you know, him, blah, blah, blah. They're like, yep, well, here's your history. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're all on the same page here. Paul does essentially the same thing in his speech from the uh, steps um, as he's as he's taken uh, away from a, of a, a riot for the Jews. He stops and says, let me tell you a story. And man, when he tells about their history, they're all, they're all listening. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... When he gets to their guilt, they're like, mm-mm. So anyways, uh, there's, think, there's, there's some think, interesting stuff. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I say, as we move forward in this, that I was going to say the if-thens. Did you guys see that in uh, chapter yeah. 12? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, and, that, and that's kind of where I was going, too, because he concludes in, like, 23 all the way to the end in 25. It's like, okay, so I've got this all out for you. I'm still going to pray for you pray for you. I'm going to teach you to do good, but you know what? If you turn away, you're going to be swept away you and your king. Yeah. And that comes after he's been talking, you know, like you said, he goes through the history and he says, he reminds him every time your forefathers forgot God, yes, he sold them into the hands of Sisera or the Philistines or Moab. Every time that you forgot, he'd, then, then you, then bad things would come on you. But as soon as you would call out, he would send you guys like, uh, and they gave some interesting names: the Jerubael, who was Gideon, uh, Badan, who I think was Bar- Barak from the Deborah story, Jephthah, and then they says, at least in my version, it said Samuel. I think it was actually we know as Samson. And when you saw this Nahash guy, you guys wanted a king too, but you forgot God was your king. Yeah. Do you guys remember, it's been a number of weeks ago now, but do you remember the part where, where I think it's, I think it's God himself speaking directly, like through Moses to the Israelites. And he basically says like, like, I, I love you. I don't love you because of you. I don't love you because you're special and you deserve this as, you know, compared to everybody else on earth. I love you because I chose you and because of who I am. Right. Do you guys remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not because of your value, it's because of my character that I love you, right? Well, and that comes up again in 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. So this 
this like God will come through on his end thing continues, not because the Israelites are so, so deserving, but because of God's character himself. Yeah. Yeah. So these, these, these if thens, I mean, there's a really interesting thing here that happens. And I had a discussion with my son this week that is basically, what do you do once something wrong has happened? Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, Israel, he's, Samuel here is basically saying, look, you guys said, this is in chapter 13, I mean, chapter 12, verse 13, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord was your king. So it's like, well, now what? And he says, and now, behold, the king whom you've chosen, if, and he says, look, here's how we, okay, look, you did the wrong thing, but here we are, let's make the best of where we are. And then he starts with these, there are three if statements in a row, and at the very end, there's a fourth. If you fear the Lord and serve him mm-hmm. and don't rebel, if both you and the king who reigns over you will fear the Lord, basically keep him in charge, keep God in charge, even though you've got a king, it will be well. Mm-hmm. But, but, and then here we go, but if you will not obey, and then there's the word then. And we already, this is a pattern that re- repeats over and over and over and over in their story. If then, if then, if then. And it happens, you know, it's just this, this happens. And Samuel, and this is a really interesting thing, because I'm tempted to do this personally, is like, fine, you know what, I'm done here. This is, um, I'm, uh, this is over. And I think there is a time to walk away from certain things. I really do believe that. But Samuel here is continuing to plead with them and saying, look, make the best of, a, of the mess that you've got. And in 21 and 23 are just some really beautiful things. Samuel says for to them, do not arise and turn after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. You know, those, those things that you think are going to be awesome, they're not going to save you. And then here's a really interesting thing. He says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So Samuel sees his obligation to pray for them as a nation as a duty between him and the Lord. And if he ceases, it's not kind of some spite against the people. He actually sins against the Lord by failing to pray for them. I just think that that has some relevance in in our contemporary lives as well, our duty, our obligation, our, another way to look at it is our opportunity to pray for others. You know, I mean, Paul, in the New Testament, Paul says, even, you know, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. There's calls in the New Testament, hey, pray for your civic leaders. Pray for, and the, just keep in mind, the civic leaders of the day weren't necessarily friendly to the Christian movement. No. Yeah. Um, and they were still encouraged to, you know what? Pray for these people mm-hmm. in this idea of mercy and this idea of grace and this idea of you put it in God's hands. And it's a pretty you know, wonderful- yeah. And, you know, I think that speaks to our situations today. I mean, there's so often I hear of people like wanting a president, a president to fail. And I'm not talking just about this president that we have currently. I'm not talking about the next president. I'm talking about presidents in the past that people have like wanted them to fail. It's like, why do you want them to fail? Right. If they fail, we fail. Right. So, you know, I mean, maybe you didn't vote for them, 
but why on earth would you want them to do poorly just so that you get your way? It's like, people, let's open our eyes a little bit and let's 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 pray for success. Because if they succeed, we succeed. You know? But even even more to me. I think this is this is this put this in the context of Samuel right here. These people have rejected Samuel's God. Samuel's been working and walking with God since he was a child. Yeah. And these people rejected God. Yeah. And in so doing, in a way, rejected Samuel to to the point where God had to tell Samuel, hey, hey man, remember. I know you feel bad about this, and you're taking this personally, but it's actually me that they are rejecting. And so Samuel's got to be in this this place of humility and just like, okay, God, it's in your hands. And he still is praying for his people. Yeah. I think that is, that is, man, that is humility. That is seeing his duty as not, it's his duty to his people. But above that is it's to God. It's like, you know what, if you reject and if you guys do this, I'm still going to pray for you. Now, this is worth noting is that there was a time, and we'll come across this today, when Samuel literally does say, I'm done here, I'm out, I'm walking away. Yeah. And I think it's when that line is crossed, and, and we'll get there, when that line is crossed and he deliberately goes against God. Yeah. The rules that are established there. But even then, he doesn't cease to care for and pray for. He's just no longer participating with. Right. And I think he no longer is participating more with the individual like Saul. Right. He still has the the people best interest in mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's not an either or like, well, yeah, I'm going <clears> to <throat> walk out and quit caring about you and never pray for you again. Or... Well, okay, I guess you know we should just always have patience and forgiveness, and so I'll stay here and put up with whatever. It's it's not either of those two things. There's there's a place between those that is uh, a healthy place. Yeah, it's worth noting too that what Karen was talking about was is what we we were talking about was in Deuteronomy seven six through eleven yeah. when God actually does say, you know, I chose you, I love you. That's why you're my people. And that's exactly where she was kind of going with that we covered, well, probably more than a few weeks ago, but it was a Deuteronomy. Yeah. Karen. Um, so this whole section in chapter 12 from 20, 20 through the end of the chapter, I thought was extremely good, extremely pertinent in all generations to all people. So yeah. like as a paraphrase, Samuel says to the Israelites, you know, don't be afraid. Yeah, you've done a bunch of evil, but don't turn away from God. Serve serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away and pursue useless idols. They won't do you any good. The Lord will not reject you for the sake of his own name. He is pleased to make you his own. My job is to pray for you, and I, and I will not fail in that. And I will not sin against God by failing to do that. Be sure you fear God and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. Like those are those are such universal themes that humanity just forgets. They just wander off and they they lower their sights. We're, we're seeing it every day. They lower their sights to the human plane where they think they know the solution and they get so excited about it. That they're willing to do anything to get that to get that solution to succeed. And it's like, no, 
No, no, no, no, no. Well, okay. So we have, we, 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 and we talked about this some over the last couple of weeks as a, as a nation. Now we have church, church and government are, are separate, right? We're supposed to have a civil government and then our religious, our personal religious inclinations are over here. But for Christians, for Christians that, that can make it kind of an odd juxtaposition <laughs> because it's easy for us to sit back and say, well, I know what God would do in this situation and, uh, you know, you're not doing it. And so I'm upset with you and, and I have the right to be because I'm on God's side. And it's like, ooh, 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 you know, that gets all of the stuff just gets so involved and so tricky. And human nature is to take our sights off of God onto a much smaller solution that we can see and then put all our weight and emotion behind it. And it's just, it's just, wow. Wow. Yeah. So let's, let's keep going because we've got some more battles here and we see Saul making some shifts in character. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the narrative jumps. We're we're up to the year, um, at the beginning of chapter 13, where it talks about Saul being in power. We're up to the year 1093 BC for those who are interested in history. Okay. So it jumps forward a couple of years in his reign there. Now, I guess we could probably say he's well-established in what he's doing. And he's chosen for himself 3,000 men. 2,000 of them were with Saul and Nicmash. And 1,000 were with Jonathan. Jonathan is his son in Gibeah. And like everybody else, he's just sent away. So he's like got his, I don't know, royal guard, his, his personal army here of 3,000 men that he's he's specifically chosen. And this is following the pattern that Samuel laid out. He's yep. like, okay, you want a king? Don't forget. He's going to pluck people. He's going to have to have his soldiers. He's going to take your men. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your food. Mm-hmm. So this is following exactly what Samuel was talking about. Right. Well, Jonathan decides to attack this Philistine garrison. And the Philistines decide they don't like that. And they gather together 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And it says, men as the sand which is on the seashore. So this is a huge army coming up to, uh, to in retribution against this, what, what would I just say, 1,000 men that Jonathan would have attacked with. <laughs> and... um Huge, huge army coming up against them. And this is all happening well within the borders of Israel. So I mean, if, if we're talking about Michmash, let's see, I, I, I looked it up on the map. Uh, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, just it said, in the Bible, it said east of Beth Haven, but this is just a little bit north of Jerusalem, which is basically right in the center of Israel. So these guys are, these Philistines are, are well within the borders of Israel obviously been there for a while, established themselves. They've been a bit of a thorn. A lot of the Israelites go into hiding, and some of them even cross over the Jordan into Gilead. And the people who are still with Saul says they were they were afraid. And I don't know what happens here exactly. There must have been a conversation back and forth between Saul and Samuel where uh, Saul was expecting that Samuel would show up at a particular time. But for whatever reason, Samuel doesn't get there. And Saul decides that he is going to present an offering. He he makes a burnt offering, 
and some peace offerings. And it's like, just as soon as he finishes doing that, this is when Samuel shows up. You know, I guess I, I can admit that there's been times, you know, you wait and wait and wait and you think, um, well, I guess I'm just going to do this on my own. And like, as soon as you do it, everything happens the way it was supposed to happen. And you realize that, you know, your actions were either unnecessary or even uh, counterproductive. What? I, I, I don't recognize that at all. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever done that in my life. <laughs> this, yeah, I mean, that is, that's what happens here. But what's, what's happening is a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't like, He's like, well, fine. I'll just go ahead and hook up the car battery, even though I'm not sure which way the wires go. Um, he's, he's. I just want to point out that this, that this is. There's t- turning points here, and they have to do with worship. All of them have to do with worship. Saul's kingship begins when he meets Samuel when they're waiting to worship. The people were waiting for Samuel to show up. Remember that? Saul yeah. was looking for donkeys, and they're waiting. And here, Saul is told to wait. And we fast forward here to the end of today's reading again. He's he's doing something involving worship, but it's not a waiting situation. But here it is. This goes back to nine thirteen. Is waiting for God, and he says, "Hey, you know what? Samuel didn't didn't show up." And the context of this is is that people were um, uh, his army was deserting. He he had very few people to begin with, and now he's getting even less. And he's like, "Oh man, I got to hurry up and do this because." Remember, is that Saul here, and you look for the clues as you do the reading, Saul is starting to look at the Ark of God, uh, God's blessing, and Samuel's presence as more like good luck charms, Mm -hmm. and make me look good kind of things. Because here, Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. He's dressed for war. He and and Jonathan have two of the only swords in the nation. Yeah. Yeah. and because the Philistines, if you read ahead in 13, the Philistines have said, no, you guys are not allowed to. Uh, they had no Second Amendment, basically. The Israelites were like, the Philistines said, nope, you don't have no chance to have any any weapon to defend yourself or to rise up against us. And so Saul is standing here in his battle uniform and he says, bring me the sacrifice and I'm going to be the priest. I mean, mm-hmm. come on, if you've been with us through Leviticus and so on. You, this is so far out of line in so many ways. This is not a minor infraction. Right. And I got, I need, I need some clarification here though, because I've made notes here that Saul is not a Levite. He's a Benjamite. So he's not supposed to be making sacrifices. Why are we waiting for Samuel specifically though? Because Samuel, if I'm not mistaken, his father was from Ephraim. Why is is Samuel the one who's supposed to make the sacrifice, or or is something else supposed to happen here? Because he's not a Levite either, but it would seem to be some indication that he was made a Nazarite. So is there something happening there that I don't quite understand? Maybe, but it's quite quite clear that God has chosen Samuel. There yeah. is no doubt he's been serving in. I mean, From he sleeps in before birth, the tabernacle. Yeah. Yep. yeah. He is so set aside. And, and here's the deal, is that the seven days, I mean, there's there's nothing really particularly, like, there's no history of, like, and you have to wait seven days to do a sacrifice. That's not a thing. Yeah, It's only a thing because, like you said, Matt, 
somehow Samuel and Saul had had correspondence. And Samuel says, don't do this. Seven days and I'm going to show up. You wait for it's clear. You wait. Yeah. Straightforward. I mean, there's there's just no real other. There's no way to confuse that with what you're supposed to do. You wait. And it's a test. You know, each of us are tested in different ways. But this is a test for Saul. And he fails it. He does the he does the sacrifice as soon as he does the sacrifice. Samuel shows up and Saul says, and this we see this again in Saul is Saul says, OK, look. So he starts with an excuse instead of saying Samuel says, what have you done? And Samuel, Saul starts with an excuse instead of I did the wrong thing. I had this discussion with my son this week and I had to apologize to my kids once this week. He said, you know, what? I did the wrong thing. We start there. Repentance starts with, you know, actually, you know what? I did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. But cover up and sin begins with an excuse. And then Saul said, well, when I saw the people were deserting, when I blah, 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 blah. And then skip down here a little bit. He's in 12. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Mm-hmm. Right. So at no point does he take responsibility and say, wow, you're right. I, I was out of line. And let's what do we do now? He doesn't do that. And Samuel says, you've, you've, act, you've acted foolishly. I think that was a key, though, and that he called wrong in its place. That's what I, I gathered from this, is that after he made the excuses for why I did something wrong, so he didn't take the accountability, he didn't take the responsibility for, for it, nope. and, and Samuel called him out and said, you did something foolish. You shouldn't have done that. And I think sometimes, and I was going back to the state of where we're at right now, is that when we were talking before, and when you can lie about something, one leads to another, and then pretty soon you become immune to it. And it just keeps perpetuating this on and on. But I think it's up to us to, if it's wrong, you call it wrong. Yep. And and the thing is, is that we we can call other people's wrong, wrong. And that's that's usually pretty fun. And there's a time when we need to do that. But more important, and let's just say more to our point, is we have obligations to that in our own life where we are, is when we're confronted with something, be it from a friend or the Holy Spirit or something we read in the Bible, and we're like, oh, man, that's that's talking to me. We have an obligation to change. And here's the, here is in the crux. I'm going to drop this in here right now because this is where it happens. This literally is where it happens in 14. In mm-hmm. chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It's a big deal. Samuel saying, your kingdom's over, dude. And it's over. But here's the thing. This is, and we, we, a lot of Christians talk about this, a man after his own heart. And we're like, oh, come on, man. David, David has more recorded sins than Saul by a long shot, right? I mean, it's, he does. But what's the difference? In, in, in after his own heart, I have, I'll just tell you guys this. I don't know that theologically this is the answer for everybody, but I've thought about this for many, many, many years. A man after his own heart. I thought it's like, well, there's a, there's, David is a guy like God. I read it differently now. 
When I read after, I mean pursues after. Yeah. When I read that, because every time David gets called on a sin, when Nathan the prophet shows up and he's like, he just calls him out on the sin of Bathsheba, he's like, you did wrong. David, instead of, oh, oh but, 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 but there was this, and but there was that, but the, the people maybe, he says, oh, I'm, yes, I'm busted. I'm wrong. And he seeks, he's, and he pursues God's heart is another, is how I kind of look at that after his heart is that David, David did wrong plenty of times, but he admits it. And he says, hey, purge me, clean me. I'm sorry. And we do not see Saul do this. We see right. Saul always making excuses, always blaming other people. And that, I think, is the crux of what changed. And that, as Karen was saying about a chapter earlier, here's a universal principle that evolved that still applies. That one still applies. Are we open to correction? Are we willing to take in humility and admit, you know what, I did wrong? I Where do we go from here? You know, I noticed something here. It was just kind of as I was glancing over it just again here just now in verse 13 there was something said that really struck me where it says now the lord would have established your kingdom yep. over israel forever yep you know when i'm reading that i'm thinking god it's basically god saying i mean we look at i look at this in hindsight now saul would have it been it would have been his line that would have produced messiah eventually wow. because you know Jesus now is king over Israel, whether you, you know, we can look at it as a spiritual Israel. He is forever that king as as the extension of that um, of that line, you know, and it's like it's like he's telling him here, this could have been yours, Saul. You you could have been the ancestor of the Messiah, but I'm going to give it to somebody else now. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's it's really huge, and I don't. I wonder. I wonder if Saul understood the implications of that at the time, or even if Samuel understood the implications of it. You know, um, so. maybe not. But we look back at it now, and we go, "Wow, that was pretty huge." Oh, so let's keep going because we got a yeah. we got a lot to get through, and a lot of mm-hmm. things happen. Yeah, so if, um, we get into chapter fourteen, and Jonathan comes up with a plan. He takes his armor bearer up to this Philistine garrison. I don't know why, but it says at this time that Eli's grandson, this is Ahijah, he is a priest. I don't know why it gives us that in verse 3, but maybe it's just for a time time frame for people who are reading this. But anyway, Jonathan says to the armor bearer, he says, let's, let's, uh, let's go up here and see what happens. If the Philistines tell us to wait or to go to them, if they tell us to come up, then we know that God has delivered them to us. And the Philistines call them. And, and Jonathan goes up there with his armor bearer and between the two of them, I guess, kills 20 men. And I don't know how many people, how many men were in this garrison here, but he kills 20 men. And this just terrifies the camp. I, I can imagine seeing one guy coming in and just just whooping up on uh, on on the, on their on their army there. Or their, think about this. I hadn't thought about this until you just said that. The Philistines had been beat down by individual Israelites in the past. Mm-hmm. They've heard stories of, oh, so-and-so grabbed an ox goat and killed a thousand people. And if I had heard that story as a kid and I saw one person come up and knock down 20 warriors, I would be like, oh, boy, I am kidding. Here we go again. I am out of here, man. 
Yeah. Well, Saul sees, I guess he sees like all these Philistines and like starting to run away. And through a process of elimination, he learns that Jonathan is gone from the camp. And then he does something. I guess we talked about this in a, a week or two where he, he, he does the same thing that was done before. And he calls for the Ark to be brought into the battle. And yep. at this point, the Ark had not been taken back to the uh, to, to, to the tabernacle, right? It was it was still being kept in somebody's house. Yeah, as far as I know, that's where we left it. Yeah, so he asked for the Ark to be brought to the battle. Like we said before, like like this thing is some kind of a good luck charm. It's like its significance was just gone. Nobody really knew what the thing was for anymore. So like here, we got this. Pretty blocks. Is that we see Saul moving from a heart transformation, repentance, obedience, to an external, hey, look, I want to look good. We're going to have the ark here. We're going to do a sacrifice. His heart's not in it. He's not obeying, but he's going through all the motions. Mm-hmm. And he, then, to, 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 and the very next thing he does, Saul's rash vow, which I hadn't really kind of had context for that, and that became more clear as I read this week. He's doing this to make himself look good. See, Jonathan goes over and starts on, because there's a quote we skipped by, but it is super awesome. Please put this on a magnet on your refrigerator. It's awesome. Uh, um, Jonathan says this in 14.6. Uh, before he starts the battle, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. Ah, love that text. So put that in context. Mm. We just read they had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, soldiers like the sand of the sea. And Jonathan, who has one of two swords in the entire country, says, they, you know, I think God could do this. Man, you talk about faith. Wow. So Jonathan goes up there with the Lord. And Saul, on the other hand, is going through the motions. And so Jonathan has started this thing with God and Saul, I'm I'm guessing, I don't think it's a stretch, sees this happening and he knows he didn't do it. And he's like, okay, so now I got to look good. Saul is very concerned with looking good. And so he makes a vow. He's like, okay, so to to honor God and to and to like nobody's going to eat. Nobody mm-hmm. eats. So he comes up with this made up pious requirement for everybody. I mean, I hike 14ers right? And I've climbed mountains for many, many years. If you don't eat and you're under heavy physical exertion, you make bad decisions, you slow down, you get clumsy. It's just a very, very bad plan. Okay. I've never been in a hand-to-hand battle like this, but I imagine it's fairly physically taxing. So Saul comes up with this, nobody eat. And here, just notice this in verse 24, whose enemies are we pursuing here? Nobody eats any food until this evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Right. Who's at the middle of all this? Saul. And so he comes up with his unnecessary requirement under a guise of being religious. I propose we still do that today. And he lays this thing down, and it does no good for anybody. makes him look good because he's not going to eat. Right? That's the purpose of this. It's like, well, y'all don't do this. And I'm going to choose the one thing that I can do that's pretty easy for me. And 
everybody else do this. And that's going to be the thing. And it's sad. I mean, we skip forward. There's the battle. They fight all day. They, they're slowing down. Jonathan tastes some honey because he finds it in the woods. Uh, he takes a little bit and it just like jazzes him, right? It's, it's his go juice. He, he grabs a little bit of honey and, and he is, he is good to go. He says he brightens his eyes. Here's the problem with Saul's false or I should say impetuous and pious declaration. He, by his false piousness, makes people commit actual sins. Because what happens is they're so hungry, they're so hungry from this, is that as soon as they capture an animal, they kill it and they start eating it with the blood in it. Again, flashback, were Israelites supposed to do this? No, that was a grievous sin. God says, you are never, the lifeblood of an animal is, is a sacred thing, and you are never to eat that. And so Saul, by his pious, impetuous decree, has made people all over, and this is in 33, and they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And then he blames them. Oh, yeah, you, you guys all did this wrong. Bring, a, bring, bring me a rock, and then I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll butcher the animals, and then I'll be the I'll be the one who makes it all right again. Well, he's making right a problem that he he created. Yeah, it's like we call those people arsonists. You know, it's like you start a fire and then be the first one to show up. Like, oh, I'm a hero. There's a story of that here in Colorado. A little uh, a landmark burned down north of us here. Well, it turns out the volunteer firefighter who was the first to went there to try to save it was the guy who started the fire, and he started it so that he would make himself look good. And that's essentially what Saul did here. He starts a fire, and then he's like, well, I'll solve this problem. Yeah, he decides to build an altar, and he, he wants to go after the Philistines. I mean, the Philistines have started running away because of Jonathan's actions, and <laughs> Saul finally decides, yeah, we'll ask God if we should go after them. And so he does, but God doesn't answer. And I suppose this is just because Saul has showed so much bad judgment to this point uh, by not he's showing so much bad judgment by not following God's rules and will that when he finally does I don't know out of some act of of uh, I don't know, it's not even desperation it's like he just wants to look good yeah. and God God just like nah I'm not even gonna answer you know you're on your own and you know to the point where he's so self-righteous. So for those who haven't read, uh, in chapter 14, Saul has said, you're going to die. If anybody eats during the battle before sundown, you'll die. Well, they find out that somebody ate. They figure out that it was Jonathan that ate. And Saul, he's so self-absorbed, says, well, that's fine. Then we're just going to kill Jonathan because he broke my vow. So that's what's happening here is that's where Saul is too. He's like, I made this thing up out of thin air. Jonathan actually delivered our entire nation with the help of God. But I'm going to kill him because he didn't uh, obey the thing that I made up a few hours ago. Yeah, and Jonathan hadn't even heard it. It's not like he had willfully disobeyed his father's word. Like he didn't even know the vow had been made. Good point. Didn't matter to, to, to Saul. He was going to do it. And the people of Israel, I mean, to their credit, they're like, not going to happen, Saul. We don't care what you said. <laughs> like. Too bad. Not going to happen. No way. And that was the end of that. Jonathan lives. Yeah, wow. I think that 
when you look at that too, that's where he lost the people as well. A lot of them right there going, you know what? Great that you're the commander in chief, but we're not going to do that. Yeah. He he actually saved the day by going up and doing that. And now you want to kill him. Yeah. That's not going to happen. So in essence, he had all the troops turn against him. Yeah. No, they all flat. You're right. They all flat out said, "Mm, yeah, what you just said. No. Well, as the chapter continues, we're told that Saul was continually attacking and says his enemies. It was interesting that you pointed that out, Eric. And it says there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. I don't remember up to this point where an an entire, um, you know, when we were going through the judges, we'd get, it seems like we would get battles. Yeah. And the Israelites would kind of then be free of whatever oppression was on them. But this is like for the entire time that Saul was king, they were constantly at war. Yep. Yeah. And the judges, like you said, there was and then there was blah, blah, blah happened. Then there was 20 years of peace and blah, blah, blah happened. Then there was 80 years of peace and mm-hmm. not here. Not here. And it tells us that Saul took any valiant man for himself, which they had been warned against by Samuel. Back in chapter 8, said, your king is going to take all your sons and everything is going to all be for his purpose. And we're given a little, we're given a little uh, breakdown of Saul's family there. We're getting into chapter 15 now. And God wants Saul to do something. And he's supposed to go attack the Amalekites. And I was thinking here. Was not wasn't it the Amalekites way back when we, when God was talking to Abraham, and he was saying, you know, you I'm basically I'm going to pull you out of this land for a long time because the Amalekites haven't. How did he put it? Well, actually, that's you're you're you may be thinking of Genesis fifteen uh, sixteen, yes. and he's talking about the the people of um, in a general way of Canaan. And God says, you know, you'll be buried in a good old, and in 16, you saw God's talking to Abram, and they, Abram's people, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites oh, is not yet complete. Okay. So they're specifically saying the Amorites in this case. But to your point, in Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19, God says to the Amalekites, this, the people that we're talking about here, he says, you will completely... Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have it, my thumb in it. You'll completely avenge. I'm going to look it up. Actually, it's 2519 because this is the, this is a prophecy that God gives specifically. Therefore, when the Lord, your, this is in Deuteronomy 2519, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance and process, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. So this is back in Deuteronomy, these exact people. So, but both of your points are, are good ones. One, God has mercy for 400 years against the, the, uh, the people yeah. of Canaan. And yeah. as, as Israel is moving into the promised land, this is back before any of the uh, uh, um, judges even, God says, these people are marked for destruction. God's been working with these people, and they've been receiving basically space for however many years before the Israelites moved in till now. 
And it's like, now your time is up. And not only in, the, in, in verse three, it's like, you'll do, you shall devote Amalek and all that they have to destruction. You don't mm-hmm. spare anything. I mean, it's, it's super specific. Do not spare them. Kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, donkey, camel, everything. Yeah. Now, they have had opportunity to repent this whole time. They didn't. The Kenites, who uh, I was reminded, that's uh, those were Moses' in-laws, uh, the Kenites. So the, Moses' wife and uh, Moses' brother-in-law, these were the Kenites. The Kenites were warned, said, hey, get out. So this wasn't like you just move in and just kill everybody that you see. Anything that moves dies. No, this was a very specific thing just against the Amalekites. And they were, Saul was given super exp- explicit, clear instructions. So there's some context. And if, yeah. and if anybody's curious as to why, if you start in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, it talks about why. Yeah. They were violent people. These these people attacked the Israelites. They attacked the weakest of the Israelites. It wasn't like they were noble and said, meet us for battle. These were just mean, bad people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so God does tell them, kill everybody, kill everything. Yes. Um, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. You know, it can seem, it is, it's brutal. It is brutal. Yes. Um, it can seem, uh, it to make God seem brutal if you take this out of context as if as if um, just out of the blue God decides, yeah. no, I want you to go take these people out. If you consider their violence, their influence of the area, how much would that influence have expanded had had thou, those people been allowed to stay, you know, at a time when God is trying to establish a kingdom to represent him and when we assume that this is the one and only God who who is establishing Israel to to be a representative of Him and to to uh, be a beacon for the world to look to for how to act, how to treat people, how to how to react to God and how to interact with God. So when He says go wipe these people out, we we have to do a couple things. I mean, we have to one assume that God knows what's best. And take into consideration that we are talking long haul goals here. Mm-hmm. And if you allow, if you allow a cancer to stay in your body, it will take over. Yep. You know, and so, yeah, it's brutal to say, go wipe out an entire civilization, including their children including the, 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 yeah, I mean, we always, we always place the categories of women and children into like, as if they're the innocent ones, but this is an entire society then that has been devoted to violence, to not following any of the things that God has put out there in a region where everybody knows the stories of how God has worked with the Israelites Mm-hmm. For hundreds of years, they all know the story of the Red Sea. They've all known the story of the Jordan drying up from the crossover. They know all these stories. They hear them all, and and to the points where I mean, there's times when Philistines, you know, they acknowledge God, but yet these people still continue to act poorly. 
Well, and I think um, I think we also have to leave room. You know, I, I totally agree with what you said. You know, we've got to we've got to trust God's perspective on this. But if you if you take these verses at, <clears throat> at face value about what Israel was supposed to do to the Amalekites, there's no personal guilt here. This is not this is not judgment from God based on individual personal guilt. Otherwise, children and infants likely wouldn't be killed. Certainly not infants. And why the animals? You know what I mean? Like this is um this is a this is a societal judgment from God mm-hmm. and the Israelites are the per- are the people that are are to carry it out. And if if we try I think that if we try to make that into a literal like, well, if I took this apart and I went into each family history, I could see why everybody deserved this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's I think that's a I think that's a little bit I think that's a little bit not trusting God's perspective because like he he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Like yeah. that yeah. whole kind of individual versus community yes. guilt so or yeah, we could parse this all out and we could well this one and that one. God says this is what you do. It's in one sentence. Mm-hmm. It's one sentence. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. And there's a little footnote in my Bible that is to set apart as an offering for the Lord for destruction. Now they were to do this. This is partially, I don't want to say worship, but obedience for sure. Yes. You do this thing. Do this, 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 and this. Okay. So just, I I wrote down a, uh, just a quick I guess, as you say, like like if this was a play, a stage play, I wrote down different parts. Okay, so let me just read real quickly here what happens. God says you are to do this, 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 and this. In verse 10, Saul has not performed the commandments. Then in 12, Saul builds a monument to himself. Then in 13, Saul says, I have performed the commandment. I did it. Saul says it again. I did this, that is disobeying, for God. The thing I did that's disobeying, I'm honoring God by doing this. God says, why did you, in 19, why did you not obey? And why did you do what is evil? In 20, Saul, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Then he blames the people. And he says, but I did it for God. In 24, Saul says, Okay, okay, I sinned, I transgressed the commandment, but it was the people's fault. And then he says, please give me a pardon, Uh, just kind of forgive this thing and and, um, go with me to to worship. And in 30, Saul again says, I sinned, but make me look good in front of the people, please, to Samuel. And then Saul says, this is a really interesting thing at the end. Please go with me. We will bow down before the Lord, your God. Not the God. Not my God. Your God. Right. So this is, this basically, so it goes, God says, do the thing. Saul says, I'm not going to do the thing. God says, why did you not do the thing? Saul says, I did. God says, no, you didn't. Saul says, yes, I did. God says, no, you didn't. And then Saul says, well, actually, it wasn't my fault that I didn't. It was the people's fault. It is it is um, almost humorous, but it's actually really sad. 
And this thing kind of goes to worship because Saul's excuse for all of this, with the exception of King Agag, is we did it to honor God. I'm going to baptize my sin by calling it honoring God. It's like, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my own cattle. We're going to sacrifice on an altar because their, 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 their obedience was supposed to kill them where they were. But they didn't. They brought them all home. And this is what happens. I mean, just Saul does not take responsibility. He does not repent. He doesn't ask for a heart change. And then Samuel has his famous lines. Yeah, so what happened there basically is Saul did not kill everybody. He takes the king alive. They take like the best of the livestock and later say, "Well, we were going to we were going to make that for sacrifice." Uh, I mean, just just did not just did not carry it out. And everything goes down exactly the way the way Eric said there. Samuel, so he's got a great yeah, some lines here. And after after Saul has said, oh, well, we were going to make these offerings for God, you know, and Samuel, so he, he comes up with this. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, let me start that over. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And I think this one right here is key. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as it is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. I mean, what a simple little statement, and how much is in that? Yep. You know, it's <laughs> so often it's like, it's like people, not people, I guess we all do it. I think... You know, you notice it in your kids and stuff, too, a lot of times, and, and I suppose less mature adults, but um, where they try to come up with some way of saying I'm sorry later rather than just doing what was right to begin with. And here where God has given such explicit instructions and instead Saul makes excuses and... Uh, for why he didn't do what he was supposed to do and did what he wanted to do. and I think that's key, though. And I look just, you know, even just a couple of statements down and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, stubbornness. And how yeah. often, and just like you said, how often do we see it in kids and sometimes immature adults that, that hard-headedness and unwillingness to yield when they do wrong. Mm-hmm. Placing yep. blame on other people. and Yeah. So this goes to this another little thing. Just reminded me of this as we were talking about this. Matthew 23, 23. This is Jesus talking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill. You do offering and yeah. cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice. And mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done, the tithing and the worship, without neglecting the others. Yeah. They're just saying, you know what? You're doing worship for show, but you're you're disobeying the core. Like, and, and this is, I guess my point bringing that up is that this is an old problem. And when you when we go to the, the blame, like, I didn't do it, it was the other person. Man, I just, 
I go, I flash back straight to, to Adam. God says, what did you do? Like, wait, wait, wait. It was, it was, it was a woman. She, she did it. And God says to the woman, what did you do? It was, it was the serpent. You put him here in the garden. I mean, this is, sadly, this is not just Saul. This, this is a continuing story. And to make it worse, not only is it disobedience, but they, they cover their disobedience under the guise of worship. So yeah. you guys remember this sort of ongoing theme that's been happening and, and all, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. so that last little bit in verse 23, chapter 15, verse 23 for rebellion is like the sin of divination. Whoa. It's witchcraft. comparing rebellion to witchcraft and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Are you serious? Yeah. Like, mm. The, this is no joke to God. You either have a teachable spirit or you don't. And when you don't, you go sideways very quickly anytime anything pushes your buttons. Yeah, and this is his final thing. Is it's interesting is that Samuel had essentially said before, "Hey, man, you're gonna, you you're headed to lose the kingdom." But at this point, until this point, he hadn't lost the kingdom. Apparently, this was kind of he was under a probationary opportunity. Because here at this point, this is when Samuel says, yeah, I'm done. Still love you, still love the nation, but I'm I'm out. It seems like a rare, a pretty rare thing for a person of in his position like that to just be like, I you, you're not going to see me ever again. You know, this is the guy who has been trying to lead through God's instruction and been met over and over and over again with selfish attitudes and weird platitudes after the fact of bad behavior. And he's like, nope, I, I'm, I'm not, you're not going to see me again. But this is after, this is, you know, this is after Samuel takes things into his own hands because Saul was supposed to kill the king and he didn't. He was supposed to do this. And I'm not sure where Samuel gets a sword because we know there was only two. I don't know if he took well, Saul's. They've been killing Philistines for days. So well, I'm that's sure true. Maybe he just stuff. took one of theirs. But Samuel takes a sword and he hacks. It says he hacked him to pieces. I. It just seems like probably. I mean, violence and blood and gore. See, this is a this is a direct rebuke. It's not just a it's not just killing somebody. Yeah. We got to keep in context here: is that Israel wanted a king so that they would quote be like other nations, right? Yeah. What other nations would do, and we saw this: is that oh, I killed you. Remember, there was a or I won over you. And remember the the the, um, the uh, uh, Philistines. I think it was no. Who was it that, that uh, besieged Jabesh Gilead earlier in our reading? Um, Philistines, wasn't it? No, there's the Ammonites or something. Anyways, basically what they said is, oh, we're going to put your eyes out. Well, what this is, this, oh, is a, oh. this is a thing of shame, right? It's Nahash mm -hmm. the Ammonite. Yeah, this was that. a shame thing. Okay, this was a, hey, see, you never forget that we're more powerful. There was another king we read about earlier who said, yeah, I had like dozens and dozens of other people who had their thumbs cut off and their right toes cut off, who ate the scraps under my table. And this, so basically what this was is like, if you won in battle, you would take and humiliate your enemy by letting them live in a position where you could show everybody, yeah, he's, I beat him. 
permanently. And that's what Saul was going to do. The people wanted a king just like everybody else. So guess what? Saul was going to do what everybody else did. You bring home the king that you defeated and you keep them around as a perpetual sign of like, look how cool I am. I beat, I beat that guy. Well, that's More a trophies. That's exactly what it is. And Samuel says, you're not having any of that. That is not happening. You want to see how much God wants you to do what you're supposed to do? You don't get this object of your pride. Watch this. And I'm sure Samuel, I'm sure Saul, when he watched this happen, was like, ew, that's like, well, there goes my bragging rights. But to the point of, of Samuel and his heart and how rare it is that somebody, God's people, gives up on others. Then it says in 34, then Samuel went up to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. He's still sad. He is still sorry. And he said earlier, I'm not going to sin against God by not praying for you. Right. And I imagine that Samuel, even though he said, nope, I'm not going to honor you in front of other people anymore. Because, I mean, that's I'm not making that up. That's verse 30. Saul says, I've sinned. Yet, yet instead of like, let me make this right, let me repent. He's like, yeah, you got me. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Basically saying, let me look good. Please just whatever you do, whatever happens, like I want to save face. And Samuel says, you know what? No more of that. I'm not going to endorse what you do by my presence anymore. Now, it doesn't stop him from praying for him. And there's a difference, right? He didn't just check out and say, well, I hope you, you know, see you in, in the afterlife. You know, he doesn't say that um, because that's not a thing. Just, But he, he, he doesn't give up on Saul, but he will not endorse Saul by his presence anymore. So there was a time to say, Okay, I, I I have to not be here anymore, but that doesn't mean he didn't care. It doesn't mean God gave up. Right. The chapter ends with a really sad verse, verse thirty-five, and says, "The Lord regretted that He had made Saul king over Israel." And the 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 first reaction I have is is with the story of Noah, when God is. I don't think it says it exactly the same way, but it's almost like he regrets making man at the time because everything had gone so so badly by people not following uh, not following God's lead. And it's interesting to hear a phrase like that. God regretted this. It's like, did God not know this would happen? I think God knew it would happen. Yeah. Um, it's Genesis 6 6, what you're referring to. Yeah. It, it, but it's not like God did a thing, like, oh, I made a mistake. You know? I think it's more like, it's got to be more like, this should have been, this all should have been better. Mm-hmm. You know? But we know it went bad when we, you know, after we go back from what we've read, this all went bad because God had to teach a lesson to the people. And show them, this is what you wanted. This is what you asked for. And, and um, well, here you go. I, I would have loved for it to go, have gone better. But this is what you wanted. And this is the results of, of uh, wanting to be like the world, wanting to be like everybody else, instead of 
just following, just following the instructions that God has given you. And uh, it's a really sad, it's a really sad statement to think that God could have regret like that. Final thoughts? This applies to us. There's a lot of stuff in here for us today. And I think it's worth um, giving it some really serious contemplation. What on the surface seems like Saul's minor, like, come on. I mean, I was close. I mean, I did the, I said I was doing the thing for God. Like saying that you're doing what you're doing when it is disobedience does not make it okay. That actually reminds me of a text in the New Testament. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yep. And mm-hmm. and, and it says, people who stand before the judgment throne and say, but we did all these things and we did them in your name. And God's response is, I, I never knew you. Yeah, and I think there's a lesson here too for us, especially in a time of, of power change in our nation, which we get every few years. Uh, a, le- a lesson against putting too much, too much emphasis, too much faith into the abilities of a human being. Like Karen said, in our lifetimes, I don't think we have ever known a time when anybody was ever happy, or everybody was happy with the way the nation was led. Sure. And every it comes around, and it just seems like it gets worse every cycle these these days, where everybody yeah. gets more and more divided. And there's very little there's very little um, effort to try to to try to really look at the middle of the road. We just look at the extremes, and everybody just seems to camp out in their extreme. And and um, I'm right, and you're wrong. And if we could just take a little effort to look where God would go with things, we realize that it's probably not in either one of the extremes, and it's definitely not with the the machinations of of human beings. And it's probably not even in the middle. I mean, no. probably not. God's probably not. Politics, God's politics are just, they're not centrist. They're yeah. totally different. I mean, it's a completely different kingdom. Yep. Uh, David, the guy we're reading about next writes this in Proverbs. I mean, so, in, sorry, in Psalms 33, we, because basically what happens is we place our faith in all the wrong places. We place yeah. it in an idol. We place it in the ark. Oh, hey, we're going to bring the ark out. That's going to work. We place it in a king. We place it in, David writes this, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. That's Psalm thirty-three, seventeen. So basically, we have this habit as humans of placing our hope in fill in the blank, a bank account, a good lawyer, a a spouse, a, uh, a denomination, a a king, a president. I mean, come on. You, the, the list is endless of where we put our faith. Mm-hmm. And God is continually saying, look, whatever it is that you're looking to, if it's not me, it's going to let you down. Yeah. 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 yeah and that's the lesson I well, have and, learned. And, to, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I read this really interesting article this week and it reminded, it reminded me of something uh, that Eric said a week or two ago. Um, so the, the article was basically, it was about leadership, and it was about, if in order to be a good leader, people need to understand the biggest weaknesses in human nature, and they need to be able to spot that in themselves and be honest about it. And, it, and when they become that authentic, like, acknowledged version of themselves, then they can lead other people and help them navigate those, those same issues, right? So it's basically like, through understanding humanity, 
I, I become a better leader and then I am also able to help my underlings, this was a workplace thing, be better employees and people. And, and, and then it gave seven examples, which were really interesting. I can read them. If, I can read them to you if you, if you want to know what they are, but basically they're all fears. And it reminded me, and I think that all of this reaching for small solution stuff that humans do is to try to navigate our fears of these different things. And it reminded me, um, Eric said the other week about, uh, the line from C.S. Lewis about the lion, the kitchen, the, the whatever it is, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, or is that what it's mm-hmm. called? Yeah, Where it's it. like, like they meet, they meet the lion, and it's like, oh, is he safe? No, he's nope. a lion, but he's good. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what it comes down to. Like we're these small little creatures with limited points of view and very narrow sets of feelings and very narrow sets of perspective. Like we're down in the thick of it, trying to see the big picture and we just can't. And so, it, and God's, God's, God feels scary sometimes. He's just as big and out of control as the, the things that we're afraid of. And yet, and yet if we trust that he's good, we can just be like, here, let me just put this in your hands and let you steer and I will stop panicking. You know, I think we need to look at too, is that we've talked about this before, is that when, when self gets involved and self-serving ideas take over, then I think that's where we kind of go astray. And I think Martin Luther King put it the best way is, is said, you really can't learn. You really can't lead until you learn how to serve. Yeah. And, I think, mm-hmm. and it's always looking at the other people and taking that love for another human and placing it above yourself. And I think we've we've alluded to this many a times, even with our current health um, issues and situations that, you know, maybe just thinking about the other person and not so much myself and what kind of, you know, predicament I'm in or how uncomfortable I am simply wearing a mask, but thinking about that other person that maybe doesn't have an immune system or, you know, is struggling with cancer and, you know, they can't be exposed to other germs and and viruses like and have the ability to fight them like we do i think that's what we really need to think about we need to think about that other person Mm -hmm. and i think that's what's being lost at this point and you know i tell people all the time never in my lifetime have i ever seen stuff like that's transpired here recently and i think it does go back to what karen says is it a fear is it a fear now that we have, is this only going to get worse? Is the next, you know, set of politics or political views, is it going to be even more radical? Is this going to be how it's going to be set up for every four years when we elect somebody? We're going to see this. And, you know, going back, like you said, our capital's never been breached like that, you know, since the 1800s. It's like we are in a perilous state at this point. And I think we do, we do need to echo those words of, of um, Samuel and say, you know what, we need to continue to pray for our nation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we could put blame on one person here. I, I, I see it more as we as a nation have failed in that we've allowed ourselves to be so divided. We've allowed things to happen by constantly looking in the wrong direction we keep looking to people i i I don't remember who said it i didn't know who it was but 
uh, it was a quote. So I'm like, we keep looking for human, how to go, I'm probably going to blow it, human uh, solutions to spiritual problems. There you go. Yeah, for and, sure. And, yep. you know, yep. we have an unrest, unlike anything I would have ever thought we'd see in this country. Um, but it is an absolute unrest and people are angry and people are frustrated. And, um, yeah, I just think, I think so often it's just because you're, we're looking in the wrong place. Yeah. And, um, I think that's what happened with Israel. They said, we want a king and God said, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And I, I, they got what they asked for. I would say that looking in the wrong place goes two directions. I would say that we're looking in the wrong place and identifying like that's the root problem, right? I, mm -hmm. I think there's that. And then there's also the where you look for your solution. So I, I think you're I think you're exactly right. But I I see that as like a, a two sided thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we could go on about this forever and ever. And we we would probably undoubtedly solve everything, you know, but yes. um, but uh, we're going to reserve that for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> four of us and uh we're gonna we're gonna move on <laughs> next week we will continue reading in first samuel uh we will read through to chapter 20 so i guess that would be 16 through 20 and then we're gonna throw in a couple of psalms we're gonna read psalm 11 and psalm 59 see how that works out those are a couple of small little psalms there that we will throw into the mix while you are waiting for that and while you are reading ahead, you can look for us at, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Give us your thoughts, your comments, your opinions. Love to hear them. Look for us on Facebook. You can find us there. Be sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors. And be sure you subscribe to us so that you reach us in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next time. Thanks for listening.